0: I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking. This is Encounter 606, Incredible Stories, and I am so, so sorry for that title. So this episode is a continuation, in a way, of our last episode where we looked at UFO lore in Sub-Saharan Africa. And during that episode, we encountered a fella named Credo Mutwa, and I said at the time... In that episode that at some point in the future we would be taking a deeper look a closer look at Kredo Mutwa and some people on on the Twitters suggested yes 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 you need to do this and um, some of them were persuasive enough to uh, persuade me to do this right away since I was already sort of immersed in the African situation as far as UFOs um, are concerned at that time so today we're going to look at Credo Mutwa. Credo Mutwa was born in 1921 in the Natal region of South Africa, and his father insisted that he be baptized into the Roman Catholic Church. His father was uh, an important official within the church uh, there in, in colonial South Africa. But on his mother's side, Credo, he says, was descended from Zulu warriors and shamans. And in the 1940s, the mid-1940s, Credo experienced an illness, which Stephen Larson, editor of Credo's book Song of the Stars, describes in his introduction as being, quote, afflicted with dreams and visions and a striking malaise. Young Credo was experiencing the sickness that often comes to future Sangomas, initiating their call. From that point on, it was just a matter of time until Credo renounced his Christianity and began training to be a sangnoma, which is the Zulu term for a shaman who was answering a calling to be a shaman rather than somebody who had inherited the title of shaman from his ancestors. When I first read that, uh, it reminded me of, of other instances where somebody had undergone a, a severe illness and then came out of the illness with a, a redefined spiritual purpose in life. Uh, Tenskwatawa. The Shawnee prophet Tecumseh's brother is the one that uh, that came most readily to mind, but it's not an uncommon narrative for someone to to undergo a horrific illness, often with you know visions or hallucinations, depending on how you want to uh, want to interpret that, and come out of it with this with this new sense of purpose. Credo eventually rose to the position of High Senussi and supervised hundreds of other traditional healers in South Africa. During the 1960s, he became well-known as a promoter of Zulu folklore and tradition uh, during the decades when apartheid was at its height in South Africa. His first book, for example, was published in 1964, and and this this is two years after Nelson Mandela had been sent to prison for his activities with the African National Congress, and violence and and revolutionary action against the uh, the apartheid regime in south africa was uh, was on the increase this 1964 book was titled indaba my children african tribal history legends customs and religious beliefs and it covered the vast mythological and historical legacy of the zulu people of that region in southern africa in 1965 A second book was released called Let Not My People Die. And this was more of an attack on the apartheid system of racial segregation and oppression in South Africa. And also sort of a a, a call for a a return to traditional African ideals. Because Credo was no revolutionary. He, He disliked the apartheid system. He opposed it. But he was not out there, you know chucking Molotov cocktails and and taking on taking on the army he was that was not his his goal and interestingly in um, in his book Song of the Stars which is where I'm getting a lot of my my background material uh, for this for this episode the excerpt that's used from Let Not My People Die to, to illustrate his point is is an interesting one to me because it's mostly about how both white and black bureaucrats are working for a system that is oppressing uh, that is oppressing people. And the emphasis is on uh, is on the racial divide, but also it's a it's a broader criticism of the government itself and, and the barriers put in place and the way that government is structured. It's not as focused on the racial segregation aspect as some people liked it would have would have liked it to be. As I said, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't a revolutionary. He was a traditionalist um, and he feared that political revolution and and political systems, modern political systems, both from the West, you know capitalism, and from the uh, the, the communist Soviet bloc, which was also active in Africa during the 1960s, that both of these things, um, although they were at different ends of a political spectrum, they're they're both on a different spectrum than he thought Africa, and the African people should be. Both of them were an unwanted Western intrusion into his world, and uh, any revolution would would work to he feared marginalize even further marginalize the traditional Zulu beliefs and practices that he promoted. So as I said, the book I'm using as a starting point for this episode is Song of the Stars, which was published in 1996, and it's it's sort of a brief biography of autobiography of Mutwa as well as uh, having an, an explication of the role and powers of the sangoma shaman. The so-called witch doctors of Africa are scientists, psychologists, parapsychologists, and artists. Sangomas are also clairvoyants, as we have seen, diviners, and diagnosers of illness. They play the same role that psychiatrists and priests and priestesses of various religions fill in Western and Eastern societies. We were the spiritual leaders of our people in ancient times, and in many ways we still are. We were the people who made it possible for Christian missionaries to operate freely in Africa because we told our people to accept these foreign men with strange ideas. It was at our sanction and with our permission that they came. But ironically enough, the very missionaries we welcomed into Africa turned around and started destroying us. Let us get one thing very clear. It is not a witch doctor who casts spells. It is a sorcerer. If you remember, in Europe, there were magicians of the white kind and magicians of the black, the dark forces. The magicians of the white were people like Merlin and other good wizards and witches. But the black magicians used their powers and their talents to destroy other people. And if it was so in Europe, it is still so here in Africa. A witch doctor will never cast a spell upon anybody. He can neutralize a spell. He can stop it. But the moment a witch doctor harms a person, he is no longer a witch doctor. He becomes a sorcerer. One we call umgatatin gatatin zulu Alamoloi insone, which means a doer of evil deeds. There is nothing supernatural. Everything is natural. We in Africa know, and please don't ask me to explain further, that the human being possesses twelve senses, not five senses as Western people believe. One day this will be accepted scientifically. Twelve. So we must not call those as yet unknown senses Supernatural. They are within the very borders of the shining land of nature. I'm not allowed to say much more, but I can tell you this. Man possesses the sense not only to foresee future events, but also to move out of his body at will sometimes. But this only happens in times of crisis. The book also goes from there to talking about sort of the general cosmology as understood by the the zulu traditions stories of of creation of primordial forces emerging and colliding gods and goddesses and and of course ubiquitously in cultures around the world the figure of of the trickster who comes to to deceive and in many cases annoy humanity from there credo moves into the relationship. Between the African cosmology and the African worldview as he describes and sees it and the question of life on other planets And he begins this by mentioning a fairly commonly cited connection between Africa and extraterrestrials There are things that fly through the night those you call UFOs which we in Africa call the fiery visitors Oh, yes, Africa has had her own share of UFOs and she has for many many centuries Long before they were even heard of in other parts of the world, we, the people of Africa, had contact with these beings and the creatures inside them very often. We call them fire visitors. I can only speak within certain constraints because we are not allowed to talk in any detail about these sacred things. Our people fear that should we do that, then the starships would stop visiting us. The Song of the Stars is truly the Song of Africa, for you will find legends and lore about the sun and the moon and all the stars throughout this vast continent. And the mythology and even the histories of our people are full of descriptions not only of the stars and planets, but of the intelligent beings that belong to them and how they have interacted with human beings. For example, the Dogons speak of visitors that came from what we call the star of the wolf, Sirius. We believe that this was the very star from which mankind was driven away after a gigantic war against the sea-dwelling fish people. We believe that we were brought to this world inside a hollowed out moon, By the two sons of nomo the great and kindly father of the sea people of that world but you will learn more about that story soon if you scratch below the surface all our tribal people have stories about the stars now if you're one of those people listening who already knows a lot about ufo stuff and probably more than even i do you won't be surprised by that mention of sirius and the dogon people you will also not be surprised that to know that we will have some more stuff about the so-called serious mystery coming up in the not-too-distant future. Um, I don't want to predict when, though, because I, the more I read about it, the more other stuff I find that I didn't think was related, but it turns out it was. Anyway, Mutwa goes on to mention other connections between African peoples and those of other planets, such as this story about the Maasai people of Kenya. In Kenya, there is a nation of people who claim great knowledge about space creatures. These people are the Maasai, a very tall warrior people. These Maasai people say they were given cattle by a great wise god with a long white beard. His name was Uru According to Maasai legend, Uru came to earth from the stars in his gold and iron canoe, and the canoe was full of cattle. And Uru released the cattle upon the plains of Masamara, there uru Wantai was met by the beautiful Maasai girl called Mara, and into her hands uru Wantai entrusted the cattle, telling the Maasai people that they were the keepers of all the cattle of the world. Their cows, which have a very long horn, are called ankole. To this day, even if they are starving and dying, the Maasai will never eat the meat of the hundreds or thousands in olden days of cattle of which they are the keepers and the owners. These fierce Masai people say they must obey that wonderful wise man from the stars called Uru Wantai, the one who told them not to eat meat. What the Maasai are allowed to do, however, is as follows. They may make a little cut in the neck of a cow and release some blood, which they mix with the milk from the cow. And then they put in a tiny bead of the fresh dung of the cow, and they make a sort of sour milk, like yogurt, and they eat this. But all you have to do is look at the Maasai to know that they are healthy. But this is a story which shows how the legends of the star people affect African tribes. We'll talk about this a little more later on. But just to be clear, from a, a sort of historical and anthropological view, the, the story that Kredo Mutwa related about the Masai people and the sky god bringing them cattle in a golden canoe, there are origin myths and creation stories like this Not just like this, but of this nature in nearly every culture on every continent in the world. Did the star people bring cattle to everybody where there are cattle? Are there different sky gods bringing different groups cattle in different golden canoes? Is there one group of sky gods that brought cattle to everybody and everybody who received the cattle has a slightly different interpretation based on the way the story was handed down to them? Or is it a story that's just a story designed to fill in the blanks for what a group didn't know about why their people have always taken care of the cattle. I tend to lean toward the latter one. Others lean towards some of those other explanations that involve space canoes. But whatever the case, what Kredo was is doing here and what, what he does throughout Song of the Stars and, and will do in various ways throughout his career is take these myths and legends these mythological stories these origin stories these creation stories and interpret them and present them in a way where those outside of that culture particularly western ufo believers will take them and look at them and say well this is clearly obvious evidence of something otherworldly and you know modern western science doesn't get it these people get it and We'll also talk a little bit about the concept of these people getting it and, uh, sort of the, the, t- to sound like an academic, the othering of various groups in service of the UFO, uh, the UFO story. But anyway, more about that in a bit, um, Mutwa also tells some stories about his own encounters with uh, with space people or fire visitors. For example, this 1951 encounter. Now, we heard a little bit about uh, about Credo last time. We'll hear some other stories that were told by him to other people who then conveyed those stories to a reader. These stories are are numerous. They're all a little bit different. Sometimes I get the impression that there's not as many stories that he's told about these things as there appear to be because every time he tells them it's slightly different and so it seems like there might be more distinct stories than there actually are but here is a 1951 encounter that he discusses in the book the year was 1951 and we were called very urgently to botswana south africa to a place near a large village where a falling star had been seen when we arrived there i found to my surprise that the bush was burning now i know it is often the case under such circumstances "'The craft, or whatever it was that had brought these creatures, had set the bush on fire. "'We went into the center of the part which had already been burned, and there was a hut there. "'At first it was so dark that we saw nothing, but then, maybe a hundred yards away, we saw something. "'It was about the size of a lorry, but it was round. It was floating in the air. "'Then two of the creatures ran out of a clump of trees that had been scorched by the fire, "'and they ran towards this thing very fast. "'They moved like little children, sort of jumping.' They ran not as human beings run, they ran with leaps and bounds, running, then jumping, then running, then jumping. We could see that the creatures were wearing some kind of dark garments, and yet their heads and their hands were bare. There were lights in this thing that was floating above the ground. It lit up the surrounding trees which had been scorched by the fire. The creatures got into this thing, I don't know how, and it just took off and disappeared. When we approached there, the grass had been burnt and one of our friends had a large paraffin lantern in which he picked out something which we know to be very dangerous. When one of these craft which carry these creatures has landed, it always leaves some kind of rubbish behind it. This rubbish is white in color. It crumbles like burnt bone, like bone turning to ash, and you must never touch it with your hand or else your hands will get hurt and blister and behave as if they've been burnt. Your hair will fall out from your head and other parts of your body, and then you will die. When we see this rubbish, What we do is dig a hole quickly, and then we take long poles, perhaps saplings tied together with rope, and we slip this rubbish into the hole and bury it. That is the African tradition. So when these craft or objects leave, after taking the little beings with them, they leave behind white material that makes your flesh look as though it had been blistered and burned if you touch it, and then your hair falls out and then you die. He doesn't say the word radiation— even though as an, as, as an educated man who had been around for a long time, he certainly knew those were symptoms of radiation poisoning. But he very cleverly does not use the modern scientific term radiation. And then when he talks about burying the material, um, he says, this is African tradition. It's a little thing, and a thing I didn't notice on the first 20 times I read through the story. But what he's doing is he's, he's sort of subtly saying oh radioactive stuff and, and being careful about radioactive material yes we in africa have been doing, been doing that for so long that it's just tradition to bury the radioactive material there are some other stories he tells in the book and what's what's interesting about mudwa's stories of the people from from space is that he is just sort of automatically assumes and and declares there's not just one group of people who come from outer space. There are multiple groups, and they all have different characteristics, and you have different sorts of encounters with them. The most interesting and, and sort of frightening encounter is the one that he would tell to abduction researcher John Mack in 1994 that Mack wrote about in his 1999 book, Cosmic Voyage. But before Kratos signs off with his, uh, with his talk of, of alien visitation to Africa, he gives us a, a nice little little callback to our friend Elizabeth Clarer, who we met long, long ago. There is a lady, Mrs. Clarer, who is known throughout the world as being a South African woman who not only communicated with, but mothered a child by a father from another world. There's nothing unusual or so unearthly about Madame Clarer's story. There have been many women throughout Africa in various centuries who have attested to the fact that they had been fertilized by strange creatures from somewhere. She's not alone. Last year, I made a prayer with Elizabeth Clare to the extraterrestrial beings on behalf of the people of Africa. I'm struck by, and absolutely love, Credo's ability to convey the supposed ordinariness of these events, the matter-of-fact way in which he discloses that interspecies, interplanetary breeding is, you know, in Africa, just one of those things. We've We've been around this forever. This is not unusual at all. You know, silly Americans. Mutwa concludes the book with some interesting but, but fairly standard material that addresses commonalities between the beliefs and myths of indigenous people throughout the world. There's also a chapter entitled Dreams, Prophecies, and Mysteries. And one of Krato's sort of, sort of roles or, or things he's known for publicly or was known for publicly in South Africa, um, during the 1980s and 1990s, was his role as a prophet, a seer, a foreteller of the future. So this is an example of one of those prophecies. According to the editorial note in the book, he made this prophecy in 1989. I have predicted that very, very soon the nation of Israel, which is in the process of losing the battle for its survival against the Arab nations around it, will come to some kind of agreement with the more moderate nations to form a loose confederation of states in the Middle East. In the year 1998, there will come to power briefly a ruler in the region of India, and this ruler will be assassinated, and it is this assassination which will cause a short, sharp conflict between East and West in the year 1999. This conflict will last less than 72 hours, but it could destroy many millions of people. It will be concentrated not so much in Europe as in the Middle East and in areas around Greece, Yugoslavia and thereabouts and I foresee that this conflict will be brought to a sudden halt by an event that will take place high in the sky. Something will fall out of the sky which will make people so afraid that war will stop immediately. I don't know what will happen here, but I do know that all the major nations of the world will be involved in it. At the end of that conflict, several nations in the North and South America, which at present are not united, will merge into one supernation to try to counter the Eastern nations. But after that, there will be a period of about 30 years of complete peace on Earth before another conflict takes place, but this time between people settled on the moon and people on Earth. That didn't happen. Um, there are those who have taken some of Kratos prophecies and, and adapted them to world events that came afterward, because honestly, much like Nostradamus, prophecies like this only really work if you look at them in retrospective and try to make them fit, which sort of makes the predictive power of predicting the future a little uh, a little less than useful but needless to say things did not really go as he claimed they would go and many of these prophecies when they when they failed to come true did harm Mutwa's credibility in his native South Africa and other things had sort of damaged his credibility there already with some of the the elites in in power during the 1990s so, He made some predictions. Some were actually kind of creepily accurate, such as this one from 1994. As a result of physically transmitted diseases like AIDS, new machines will be created which allow people to make love to each other through unbelievable distances. How could this be, I thought? Electronic love made through the mind and machines. This could happen within five or six years. So, with some shocking accuracy, he sort of predicted the advent of unsavory internet chat rooms and potentially some of the deeply icky virtual reality setups that seem to be on the horizon. Oh, and by the way, the aliens are on their way as well. In the year 1999, even beginning perhaps as early as 1997, many people will laugh at this, but please, they must hear. This world will be visited by some of the gods from the stars, the so-called aliens, They have been secretly visiting, but I think now they will become visible. Because a great decision is going to be made in the stars about the fate of the Earth. The Earth is a very special planet to those people from the stars. It was an artificially created world whose purpose was to breed living beings. This is why the star people are so interested in our Earth. It is a womb world. Now we are going to see many strange things coming from the stars into our world." By the late 1990s, Muwa had become an increasingly known quantity within both the Western New Age community and the UFO community more specifically. While, as I mentioned in our last episode, this was partially due to his connection to conspiracy theorist David Icke, I believe he also probably reached a wider audience by being featured in John Mack's landmark 1990 book, past 1999 book, rather, Passport to the Cosmos, Human Transformation and Alien Encounters. One of the things this book does is have... Krato relate to mac who relates it to us a tale of an encounter that Krato had with alien beings that was more sinister than his encounter where he just sort of saw the hut craft lorry shaped thing take off with the small beings inside it in this encounter he talks about uh, about happening upon these these beings in the forest and they take him they abduct him in a literal sense, and he's on a table, and they extract biological material from him, and he has scars and scoop-mark-shaped scars, for those of you versed in abduction lore, that, uh, that Mac examined. By 1999, when, or 1994, rather, when he tells the story to Mac, Mutwa's stories include aspects that are familiar and resonant with traditional, using sarcasm quotes, traditional abduction stories. Does this mean that he had experiences that were sort of consonant with what abductees have claimed to experience? Or does it mean that he saw a way to attract an audience with a wider message about African spirituality, the earth, ecology, which we'll get to in a second, and things like that, And framing his story in this abduction style was a way to make that more attractive and more relevant to Western UFO types. I don't know. Um, I have my suspicions, and and that doesn't make it a bad thing. Um, If you have a message that you think is of vital importance to the human race, you find a way to get that message to the widest audience possible. Whether it's George Adamski talking about the Space Brothers wanting peace and please don't nuke anything, or Kredo Mutwa talking about the need for for a return to some traditional ideas within Africa and and perhaps around the world, you use whatever tools are at your disposal. But his story does take on those more abduction-framed things. And one of the the themes of the book at large, uh, Passport to the Cosmos, One of the themes among all the experiencers that Mac talked to was the ecological threat faced by the planet Earth and the information about this passed along to experiencers regarding this threat. Kredo Mutwa speaks of this planet as, quote, our Mother Earth, a special nurturing place where new species are, quote, allowed to reach maturity and perfection, a mother world or a womb world, a growing place, a garden which we are messing up. According to African culture and religion, he told us, "...there are 24 mother worlds in the sky, and our Earth is the 25th. A mother world is a specially made planet whose purpose is to give birth to life. Now these mother worlds are very, very rare. You can find thousands of worlds without life, and only one mother world." This uniquely created world, he says, is "...guarded by ancient entities such as whales and others, which we kill in our stupidity. The various groups that have an interest in the preservation of our planet, like the Montedane, to whom this planet is sacred, are trying now to discuss what to do with us. In his conversations with Mac, Mutwa also connects these ecological disasters and crimes to his prophecies of the human future. Credo Mutwa, who told us of his visions of a dying world, believes, quote, These creatures come from the future. They are terrible prophecies that you find throughout Africa to the effect that as a result of the dirtying of the earth by human beings, as a result of human beings practicing very bad magic, the sky will become dirty. The animals will vanish. The seas will turn into poisonous mud. Water will be even more precious than gold to human beings at that time. Then human beings will change, we are told. They will become smaller, like the Montadane. In his conversations with Mac, Credo gives a lot of credence to the idea that the Montadane, the aliens, the, the, the group of aliens that are probably most analogous to the stereotypical gray alien, if you want to sort of keep that shorthand in your head, that the Montadane have had a lot of influence over human affairs throughout the millennia. Credo believes that the extraterrestrial beings have covertly influenced and manipulated all human cultures and civilizations profoundly for hundreds if not thousands of years, operating in the shadows. Warriors like the Maasai go into battle wearing codpieces to protect their genitals from the Montadane who might otherwise drain their semen and women wear certain ornaments to protect themselves from being sexually molested by them. From the art and oral traditions of various African tribes and from his own experiences, Credo has concluded that some of these creatures, especially the Montadane, quote, share the earth with us. They need us. They use us. They harvest things from us. But he is not altogether sure why. According to Credo, the Montedane have caused wars and other terrible cruelties and have manufactured diseases to destroy human beings or to test our resistance to various bacterial strains. But they have also had a positive influence and done helpful things. They taught the Zulus how to drill through stone and the Egyptians to cut the stone with which they made their pyramids. When smallpox threatened to wipe out the Zulu tribes, the star people told our people what to do to protect themselves, said Credo. And during a terrible famine, when crops were failing and hundreds were dying, A race of Montadane like creatures, only taller, came out of the sky and taught women how to grind and cook the poisonous cassava root to render it edible and palatable to human beings. It is this discussion of alien influence that we discussed last time as well that probably appealed to David Icke and led him to, in some way, fit Mutwa's ideas into his own theories of shape-changing reptilian overlords dominating humanity. Mutwa, in general, endorsed these views, particularly the idea of the evil overlords being reptilian in nature in his conversations with mac the reptilian appearance or or texture of the skin or or just reptilian nature of these creatures is uh, is discussed several times and he spoke with ike especially 98 99 2000 on a number of radio programs and in an epic 6 hour documentary And uh, he says something in that documentary along the lines of, if you want to understand all of this, you must understand the reptile. Now, this isn't to say that Mutwa endorsed every aspect of Ike's views. I'm not even sure David Ike endorses every aspect of David Ike's views. There are difficulties, actually, with perfectly blending Western approaches to the paranormal and and political conspiracy theory, for example, with African mythology. And John Mack acknowledged this difficulty in uh, in Passport to the Cosmos. Credo, like other indigenous people with whom I've discussed these matters, does not sharply distinguish material or literal reality from mythic truths. This has made it particularly difficult for me to sort out what he may have actually experienced and what is part of African legend. His abduction experience, for example, has many elements that are familiar to us from American studies. But when he speaks of Africans becoming poisoned by eating the flesh of the Montadane, or the string-shirt sister who takes people underground, we're on unfamiliar ground. Certain ideas of his, like the dominant role of the Montadane and other extraterrestrials or star beings in human cultural history, seem related to tribal myth and legend. So where does the myth end, and the reality, the, the documentable material reality begin? For someone like John Mack, a trained behavioral psychologist and, you know, science-y guy. And for a lot of us, that's an important distinction. We're looking for where to draw that line. What is myth and legend and what is something tangible? For credo Mutwa, I think he would probably, from everything that I've read by and about him, he would probably tell us that such thinking is a prime example of why Western rationality and science has gone so far off the rails from truth. There is no line between the mythic and the tangible. It's all one thing, and we need to transcend the idea of that line in order to understand that. So as I was working on this episode and doing research for this episode and writing up this episode, I wondered how deeply I wanted to go into the realm of colonialism or the issue of commodification of native spirituality and just far enough was what I decided for the uh, what was the was the best course of action. In talking about colonialism, we look at Credo Mutwa's life. Uh, his father was was a you know significant figure in the Roman Catholic Church in South Africa, and as a young child, Credo was pulled between um, the, the Roman Catholic faith he'd been baptized into and the traditional African beliefs of the other side of the family. And, and there's a tension there. And that tension between his own culture and the outside culture that, that missionaries and soldiers and politicians brought with them is, is, has sort of fueled and, 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 and driven him to to point out the, the differences and, and flaws between the two different things that are going on. So the idea of, of the traditional African knowledge of the stars, of the star beings, of how the star beings continue to interact with us wasn't just suppressed by time and loss of memory and, and, and stories becoming more mythologized as they go on. They were actively suppressed by the imperialist powers who came to Africa and disrupted that traditional way of life. That's an, an important thing, to keep in mind this when he talks about what he talks about he's not just talking about ufos and that's going to be something i'm going to return to in a little bit it's not all about ufos nothing is all about ufos despite what some people may have you believe so as i was working on this i went looking not for what ufo believers thought about kredo mutwa and his stories because many um often pointed to them as usual as evidence of whatever they already thought the phenomenon to be. As we've seen, Max saw elements of abduction. David Icke sees a sinister force manipulating humanity from behind the scene. Rather, I-, I wondered what those who study, who professionally study indigenous folklore and spirituality, had to say about Mutwa and his teachings. And one thing I found um, is an article from 2002 entitled, "Credo Mutwa, Zulu Shaman. The Invention and Appropriation of Indigenous Authenticity in African Folk Religion." It's by a fellow named David Chidester of the University of Cape Town in South Africa and was published in the Journal for the Study of Religion. And the abstract of the article uh, sets out Chittister's point quite well, like abstracts, you know, are supposed to do. How has credo Mutwa emerged globally, if not locally, as the supreme bearer of South African indigenous authenticity. Retracing his long journey from Zulu witch doctor to new age shaman, I have highlighted Kredo ongoing reinvention of himself in relation to different appropriations of his authority. During the 1950s, Mutwa was used to authenticate African artifacts for a curio shop in Johannesburg. Through his writings in the 1960s, his tourist attraction in the 1970s, and his cultural village in the 1980s, he was used to authenticate the racial, cultural, and religious separations of apartheid. During the 1990s, as he acquired the label of shaman, through the interventions of exponents of New Age spirituality, Kredo authority was invoked to authenticate a diverse array of enterprises in saving the world from human exploitation, environmental degradation, epidemic illness, endemic ignorance, organized crime, or extraterrestrial conspiracy. In all of these projects, the indigenous authenticity of Kredo Mutwa added value because he represented the, quote, pure voice, untainted by modernity, of an unmediated access to primordial truth. Although he has sometimes been accused of being a fake, Kredo Mutwa, I argue, has been doing authentic religious work by reformulating enduring motifs of indigenous religions, even when his authenticity is certified by aliens. In confronting the issue of authenticity, Chittister says the following. Now, reading this, I felt like I was back in grad school, but don't worry, it's not too complicated. Although folk religion might be regarded as a residual category, designating relations with gods, spirits, and sacred places that are left over when world religions have been factored out of the religious landscape, the very category of folk religion was produced out of a range of intellectual interests in the authenticity of the primitive, the savage, or the exotic. The notion of folk, popular, or indigenous religion has carried an aura of authenticity because it evokes the organic religious life of the rural peasantry rather than the urban citizenry, the lower class rather than the elite, the ordinary people rather than the clergy. In the process of its production as a category, however, Folk religion was appropriated, reproduced, and arguably reinvented by urban literate elites within modern societies to lend an aura of authenticity to emerging nationalisms. These invented traditions transformed folklore into fake lore in the service of national interests. So in a nutshell, in pretty much the 20th century, as anti-imperialist agitation and, and revolutionary feelings began to grow in various colonized parts of the world, including Africa, those educated urban elites who saw themselves as the leaders of anti-colonial movements were able to mold traditional beliefs into something that could be used as a tool for this new nationalist endeavor. Now, from what we've seen of Kratomutwa Mutwa so far, he Didn't really see a place for his vision of traditional African culture and thought as being part of a revolutionary nationalist exercise, which is what put him at odds with some of the nationalist revolutionaries back in the day. So, Chittister goes on to sort of discuss Mutwa as to some degree um, a a collaborator with the apartheid regime in South Africa. then says the following. credo Mutwa poses an extremely difficult problem. Speaking for himself, as well as for Africa, credo Mutwa asserts an indigenous authenticity that has been acknowledged all over the world. In his native South Africa, however, he has often been described in the popular media as a fake, a fraud, and a charlatan, alluding to Mutwa's complicity with apartheid, the apartheid regime of the National Party, and apartheid structures of South African Ban Toussaint's, journalist Hazel Friedman reported that Credo Mutwa has been widely regarded as, quote, a charlatan and opportunist who consorted with the enemy, end quote. Within South Africa, therefore, credo Mutwa has not always represented indigenous authenticity. In fact, when he has not been entirely ignored, Mutwa has primarily appeared in popular media stories about his failed predictions as a false prophet who nevertheless continues to predict the future. But how does such a fake produce real effects in the real world? How has Kredo Mutwa emerged globally, if not locally, as the supreme bearer of South African indigenous authenticity? To clarify the, the very complicated story of the supposed collaboration between Mutwa and the South African regime in the 1960s and 70s, here's, here's an example. Basically, he had built a, a cultural village. And I may be wrong, but my reading about it suggests something along the lines of Greenfield Village or Strawberry Bank, some kind of living history or heritage site. Anti-apartheid activists allege that the cultural village was tacitly legitimizing the township system, that the segregated housing and segregated, you know, living territories in South Africa. It burned down eventually. And and like we, we hear in this journal article, within South Africa itself, credo uh, Mutwa's reputation is is as a guy who told the future and got it wrong. And who's sort of done hokey, semi-fakey traditional religious and history and and legend and lore type of stuff. But these inauthentic expressions, spiritualities that are co-opted and manipulated in different ways and for different purposes over the decades, can come to be considered authentic, he's arguing, via the approval of figures that are perceived to have authority with a particular audience, like the South African government or, for our purposes, the New Age movement, the UFO, and the conspiracy community. What makes Credo Mutwa's expression of African religion, in quotes, authentic? Somebody saying it's authentic. Whether that's the South African government who see in his message and in his writings and in his actions a way to point out the primitive, in quotes, primitive nature of Africa before um, before colonialism or within the world of Of new age attention to the messages that indigenous spiritualities might have for us in the modern west his discussion of extraterrestrials appealing to ufo types or even even the the dark mutterings of you know sinister powers behind the scenes controlling things appealing to conspiracy theorists credo mutwa's ideas and he's not alone in this this is something that happens with indigenous beliefs all over the place credo mutwa has authenticity because authority figures within a certain audience give him grant him that authenticity that is recognized so in the 1990s when the old government is swept away and a government headed by the african national congress the group that had persecuted mutwa and had opposed him and had held him up as sort of a collaborator with the enemy when they come into power in the 1990s within south africa credo mutwa's stock drops even further right and then along comes the ufo movement along comes john mack within a couple years of these political shifts in south africa and so mutwa has a new audience again this doesn't mean he doesn't believe what he's saying and that what he's saying doesn't have authenticity within it but that authenticity and that message is often shaped by the context Another scholar, Eric Sathra, in an article entitled UFOs, Otherness, and Belonging, Identity in Remote Aboriginal Australia, not Africa, but hang on, concludes that there might be a net positive effect for indigenous communities. He says the following. It seems as if extraterrestrials could be a way through which indigenous minorities are able to integrate local cosmologies into a global discourse thereby transforming what non-Indigenous people previously viewed as superstition into an encounter with superhuman beings that are acknowledged by UFO enthusiasts around the world. As a result, UFOs might be able to recast and reimagine the role, status, and identity of Indigenous peoples in a rapidly globalizing world. So what this scholar is saying is, yeah, these Western UFO types are looking for stuff like this. They don't have a problem with something that, with stories and encounters and things that don't conform to a rational Western materialist viewpoint, this can be a vehicle for indigenous peoples to promote and expand and spread their message, to give them some role and status and identity, as it says in the article. These ideas have some interesting and far-reaching implications. Without going down the road of talking about cultural appropriation and such things, in my decades doing this, I've noticed a troubling trend of UFO believers paying attention to indigenous cultures, world religions, and other topics solely for the purpose of reinforcing their own assumptions and promoting their particular agenda about UFOs. Whether it's stories from Africa, or Central and South America, or North American native traditions, or whether it's Ezekiel's wheel in the Old Testament, or Paul's encounter on the road to Damascus, or saucer-shaped things in the background of Renaissance paintings. UFO believers, some of them, have tended to look at everything through a UFO lens. At the same time, I've noticed those who claim to speak for native groups, or, in some cases, loudly proclaiming they do not speak for these groups, and then going on to act as though they're speaking for the groups, that some of them use the UFO publicity machine to promote their own ideas about politics, ecology, spirituality, and such. One, um, one example that sticks out in my mind that we're, might be worth a whole episode down the road was a fellow back in the 90s named uh, Robert Morningsky, who appeared on um, sightings on the radio and on the Art Bell show on Coast to Coast um, during the Hellbop Comet Uh, encounter back in 1996 and 1997 and he proclaimed this claiming and asserting that he was absolutely not a Hopi elder and not speaking for the Hopi elders and he's just a guy on the radio that this is actually something called the Blue Star Kachina and it is going to be the harbinger of an event that will wipe out all life on human earth within seven years except for a chosen remnant of the spiritually pure Um, and he connected it to to various, uh, to various Hopi legends, that sort of thing. So it works both ways. It's not just Westerners appropriating native history and beliefs to promote their UFO agendas. It is as, uh, as Eric the scholar, Eric Sathra said in that passage we just heard, it's about using these Western UFO beliefs and believers as a vehicle for transmitting indigenous ideas and gaining status that way. When you're living the saucer life, as I'm sure some of you have been cursed to do, one must take care not to assume that everything is about UFOs. And take time to enjoy history and religion and folklore and literature and art and archaeology and music and science and anything else without being worried about what these things may reveal about the space aliens. Believe me, you will find that your life will be much fuller and much happier. There are links to Credo Mutwa's book, links to where you can purchase the rights to view the epic six-hour documentary, um, which is really just a conversation between Credo Mutwa and David Ike. Things like that are all up on the website, along with the archives, at saucerlife.com. You can follow along on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, um, or email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. The Saucer Life Encounter 606 was written and produced by me, Aaron Gullius, and is a Chizo Media production. You can subscribe to The Saucer Life anywhere you find podcasts, and ratings and reviews on iTunes and other platforms are, are really great, and thank you to those of you who have left um, such nice comments for us. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.